You are now listening to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast. Let the story begin. One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin. Hold me down. Yeah. Welcome to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast, and I'm your host, Greg E. Hill, the culture change agent. On this show, we interview young, successful minorities in a variety of fields to educate, empower, and inspire our current and future generation leaders. And I just made the cutoff. It is officially 11-11 here in Durham, North Carolina. And we are uploading this podcast. I'm pumped up. I'm excited. We barely beat it because my computer died on me. And I left my laptop charger at school. So I had to drive all the way to school to pick it up. And then all the way back. So we just now getting to upload it. But today's episode is phenomenal. And we're breaking new ground. I've never had anybody of Latino descent on this episode. And we have two guests, I repeat, two guests on this show that are killing it in the social enterprise space that have recently been on the Forbes 30 under 30. Like I'm telling you. And when I read their bios, it's, it's crazy. The incubators, the companies that support what they do. And honestly, they're just generally good people with big hearts that are changing things first in Brooklyn then in New York, and hopefully in 10, 5, 10 years, the whole United States and maybe the world. So I can't wait to get in their story. But before I begin, I just want to say a couple of things. One, if you're listening right now and you have not left a review, make sure you stop right now. Go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. We need to get back in the rankings. We got crazy download numbers, but we need we need those ratings to get into the rankings. Also, I want to spend a special shout-out to Elsie Smallock, Clarence Dials, Khadija Stigall, and Dr. Eve Hudson. Y'all been showing me mad love on social media, and I know a lot of other people have as well, but I want to get into a habit of early in the show thanking my supporters. Me, I get all these messages on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook. I don't get a chance to reply to them all, but the ones I do receive, I'm thankful for it. I read them, and I appreciate them. So keep, please, supporting, tell your friends as we continue to grow. Also, please keep me in your prayers. I'm in semester two of my first year of teaching. I got a new group of students. I want to make sure I set the tone so far so good, but I'm teaching Excel and Access. Those ain't my strongest courses and accounting. Those ain't my strongest courses, but luckily I got a great support staff, great administration has helped me out. But let's do the math. You got 90-minute block schedule. You have 9th through 12th graders. You have Excel and Access, which may be one of the most, two of the most boring topics ever, and you got to get them through and get them pumped up excited. So I guess it's the culture change agent. I got to figure out a way. So it keeps me up late at night sweating. I'm dreaming about teaching. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm having nightmares about students. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. So definitely, please, please keep me in your prayers. 
And that's all I got right there. So we're going to jump right into the show. Usually I start off with a long diatribe about my life, but we're going to get into that next week. But right now, I want all the focus to be on our two guests. So let me get into their bio. They are the co-founders of New York on Tech, a 501c3 nonprofit association on a mission to prepare the next generation of technology leaders emerging from New York City. New York on Tech provides underrepresented students with access to development, mentoring, networking, and professional experiences that prepare them for degrees and careers in technology. Their work has been featured in major media outlets such as Sirius XM Radio, Huffington Post, TechCrunch, BET, Black Enterprise, Alley Watch, The Network Journal, and most recently Forbes Magazine, where they were recognized as Forbes 30 Under 30 in social entrepreneurship. As mentioned previously, they've been co-founded by two people. The first being, prior to New York on Tech, he was a technology consultant for a century, and has worked for global brands that include Ernst & Young's, Tom Warner, HBO, and J.P. Morgan Chase. He's been named the 2015 Camelback Ventures Social Innovation Fellow, 2016 Point of Light Civil Accelerated Entrepreneur, 4.0 Schools Launch Entrepreneur, Goldman Sachs Entrepreneur of the Year, Merrill Lynch Growing Up CEO, Morgan Stanley Emerging Leader, and was named one of the 50 visionary men to watch in 2015 by Innovator Magazine. And he's a proud graduate of Syracuse University. And the other co-founder is she's worked as a technology consultant for global brands such as Accenture and Deloitte and has been named an entrepreneur in residence at the General Assembly. J.P. Morgan Chase. She's also been awarded J.P. Morgan Chase's Global Enterprise Technology Leader, Morgan Stanley Emerging Leader, Deloitte Future Leaders Apprentice, and one of the 50 visionary women leaders to watch in 2015 by Innovate Magazine. Like I said, that was a mouthful, a lot of awards, a lot of leadership, and that's only the half of it. But we're not going to spare y'all, bore y'all any longer. We're just going to bring these people to the show. They're going to add a lot of value, a lot of impact, and it's going to be a fun show. So so without further ado, I would like to introduce Evan Robinson and Jessica Santana to the Minority Trailblazer podcast. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. We're really happy to be here. Thank, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> no no problem, no problem. I try to keep the juice, but I was like, all these awards, my tongue was getting twisted, whatever. But, oh, man, it sounds all good. I'm happy to have you all on the show. Most definitely. <laughs> okay, so as customary, as we start every show, we always like to start off with a quote and then have our have our audience or have our, our guests share that why that quote is applicable and how they apply it to their everyday lives. So I don't know who wants to begin. Um, we're going to flesh it out. I know the last time I had two guests on the show, it turned out great. We're just going to flesh it out. And whoever wants to go first can go. All right. Sounds good. So I've actually, I'll have, I'll do a self quote. So this is a quote that I actually created myself. Ooh, original? It's good. Yeah, man. So I'm waiting for the trademark right now. It's pending. <laughs> um, so the quote um, is, I plan to be a product of my environment, but a product in which my community will be proud. Um, and to essentially give you some context behind that quote, um, I was given a speech through an entrepreneurship program I had did in high school, and they had invited me to um, for the kind of award ceremony at Goldman Sachs. And essentially, I was trying to think of a theme for, you know, the speech I was going to give. And I was kind of in the high school phase, which is, you know, for a lot of people, a, a big, big change in your life, right? Mm -hmm. Either, you know, go the wrong route or, you know, try to figure out your route or go the right route. Um, and essentially, I figured out that, you know, essentially the work that I was doing in my community at that time, I had a small business. I wanted to essentially be a figure in the community, but something that my community could be proud of and not, you know, one of the 
stereotypes that people traditionally thought of when they thought of my zip code of where mm-hmm. I live in Brooklyn. Um, so again, that's a, I plan to be a product of my environment but product in which my community be proud. Oh, I got you. I know. When next speech, I, I, I got to include that, but I'm going to make sure I got Evan Robinson at the end of that thing. So you already got, <laughs> you got the, the Model Trailblazer trademark. So Jessica, lead us in. For sure. Um, so when I was an undergrad at Syracuse, I had an opportunity to um, hear from the chief Orin Lyons of the Onondaga Nation. And something that he said during his talk was that He stands here as the seventh generation because seven generations ago, someone cared about him. And I think that that quote has lived with me for a very long time. And I think primarily it's because, you know, I want to live a life of service. And I do believe that the reason why I'm able to do the things that I'm able to do is because I've had people bring me along, you know, along the way, the theory of lifting as we climb. And so... I want to say seven generations to come um, that there's someone that seven generations before me that can directly attribute their success or their opportunities to the work that I've been able to do or pathways that I've been able to create. And so very passionate about that quote. And it's been with me for at least a, a think I would say like a decade now. Oh, wow. That's some, that's first of all, that's some great memory. Um, and second of all, that's that's really big. And I think I've already touched on some things that we're going to jump headway into into this podcast about your initiative, about your heart that drove you to jump into this initiative. Because uh, we all know that anybody that's listening, the nonprofit world is not for the faint of heart. Um, and it's not for, for those, if you, it's, it's, it's a lot that goes into it. So I can't wait to talk about that. But before we get into New York on tech and everything else, can each one of you paint the picture of your lives prior to, um, prior to this entrepreneurship journey and, and prior to all this, like, Panis, tell us who you really are before the awards, before all the pressure, before creating these pathways and whatnot, who you were and where you're from. Sure. Melvin, you want to go first? I'll let you go first. Go ahead. Okay, sure. Um, so before New York on Tech, I had I was a graduate of Syracuse University who was just starting her career um, in technology for a really big global consulting firm. And I was doing that in New York City. I was super passionate about finally, you know, getting to do what I studied. And I had recently graduated from my master's program in information technology. And I was working with clients in financial services and federal agencies. And it was it was very rewarding work to be able to, to be a part of projects and you actually see them come into fruition. So my specialties were in product management and design. Um And I was super ambitious about this digital space. And so a lot of the things that I worked on were digital redesigns, um, mobile app designs and, um, you know, being able to work with some of the finest people and some of the smartest people I know Mm -hmm. was a really humbling experience. And I would say, like, from a qualitative standpoint, I was just this very ambitious 20 something year old um, with her eyes really, really big trying to take over the city. Um, But I think. Uh, a lot of what I experienced at my firm and at my company and, you know, kind of the reflection you do when you start a career really inform you about what your next step should be. Hence, throughout that process, um, the creation of New York on tech. Mm-hmm. And um, 
And also, can you talk about a little bit about kind of growing up and your socioeconomic status growing up? Because I think that will put some some flavor and context, too, into uh, New York on tech. Yeah, for sure. You know, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I grew up to two immigrant Puerto Rican parents who gave everything up in, in the islands to come to the United States to live what it is to be the American dream and provide their children with opportunities. So I was the first in my family to graduate with a four-year college or university degree. I was also the first in my family to get a master's degree. Um, and I basically am kind of paving the way for what the Santana name is going to mean in a few years. Um, but I think that, you know, came from very humble beginnings, but beginnings that have definitely showed me you know, what my values are, what kind of character I want to have, and then also what kind of impact I want to leave in, in terms of what my legacy will be. And so very humble beginnings, but uh, super appreciative for those experiences because they really show you who you are and they really reflect in, you know, how I decide, they really reflect in how I decide to show up. Mm, okay, great, 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 great. Now, Evan, 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 give us a little backstory about yourself. Yeah, so I'll I'll touch at top first in regards to where Jessica started in regards to like professional career. So similar to Jessica, my car, uh, career path started on the same track where I was working as a technology consultant. Particularly, I was always focused on uh, investment banks and financial institutions. So mm-hmm. helping them with a lot of like you know uh, large programs and products and development of a lot of technology projects um, from the whole scale, from like you know apps to websites to um, databases, um, the whole spectrum of different kind of tech when it came particularly to investment banks. Um, so that's where I started my career. Uh, before that, the, the, the younger Evan, you know, I was just a <laughs> regular guy from the 718 from Brooklyn. Um, you know, I think growing up, I always knew that I was ambitious and um, that I wanted to do a lot of things. I think it was just as you get older that that the vision becomes more clear. So I always had like that hustle and that drive inside of me. Um, that I that I felt burning, and I knew, always knew I wanted more past what I seen, you know, around the blocks that I was growing up in. So that was always kind of the ambition behind me. Um, I think you know you touched on the socioeconomic background aspect. Um, um, like you know, I came from uh, what people would consider one of the the toughest neighborhoods in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. along with Jessica. Um, however, you know, I think growing up, I didn't. Um, see the value that it's installed in me as a business professional. And I think that's something to draw on that's important. Like a lot of the things that I learned growing up, I think helps me a lot today in business in the sense of like, you know, learning how to read people and and trusting your instincts and your guts um, to really just being very, you know, um, entrepreneurial minded and very creative on the spot. Um, to, you know, just wanting more out of life. So I think a lot of those lessons that I learned very early on um, growing up where I grew up, it's been something that's allowed me to propel my career both in the corporate world as well as the nonprofit space with uh, New York on Tech. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's great. That's great. And before we get into, as we segue into the creation of New York on Tech, and then this probably question will help us segue there because I, I've hear a lot about, I hear about it all the time and I see it. I've read it on, um, journals and scholarly articles and whatnot about gr- this thing of grit and those, those people that come from, say, urban environments. I grew up in an urban environment, grew up in an urban environment and they, they, they have this and people would say they already have this grit installed, this sadness. Avenue about them, and if 
apply properly would transfer great into the business world and all these other things. But as a teacher myself, as well as a person that's constantly been in classroom speaking and in educational systems, there's still a huge, huge gap because it's easy to say, well, if the kid knows how to sell drugs and do all this other stuff, then if he could just re um, redefine or re redo his interests, that he will be amazing X, Y, and Z. But getting that, getting that student to change his mind in between and utilize that to do something else. That is where the hard work and the, 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 sometimes the luck comes into play. Like Jessica said, those seven generations having somebody in your corner to help redefine, um, how to utilize that skill set, um, better. So I guess the segue to New York and Tech, what do y'all believe from, from what y'all have experienced in your own personal life allowed, um, Y'all to take the natural stuff y'all have learned through maybe adversity that you had in your family, maybe adversity that you've seen all around you in New York growing up. What differentiated y'all? Because I know there might have been others out here that had ambitions about going outside the block and seeing other things. But what do you think specifically um, changed or, or grew in y'all to really make that next step forward? Because I think that's pivotal for maybe our education, our, 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 our people that's in there that work with students and whatnot. Maybe some things that we can look for or try to to work on with the students that we serve. Yeah, definitely. I mean, honestly, I think. I think even growing up in in one of the roughest neighborhoods in Brooklyn, I never saw it as a trap. I saw it as as, as an opportunity. And I think that when you get to a point in your life where everyone around you, your parents, your family, people in in you know who care about you, who didn't necessarily have a lot of opportunity, when they tell you that you literally can live your life by decision and not by default. That changes the kind of perspectives um, and the kinds of ways that you see your circumstances. You know, like, sure, I grew up in, in a rough neighborhood and sure, like it was very difficult to grow up in, in under-resourced schools and may not have had access to the relationships or the mentors or the information to get me to make really good decisions um, all the time. But I also saw that as an opportunity for me to learn, right? And so what I didn't know, I supplemented through Google and through, um, you know, the internet. And what I wanted to find out, I used to go to the library and ask. And I think one of the things I would say um, that that I'm proud of is that I'm a very resourceful person. And I also don't see, um, I don't see anything as a challenge. I really see everything as an, as a learning obstacle. And I think that once that obstacle is something, you know, so you can cl- you can climb over any obstacle, um, but you definitely just have to put your mind to it first before you think you can, you know, jump over it. And I think that's not enough um, uh, advice. That's not like the advice that's going on around right now. Like anyone, no matter where you're from, talent is everywhere. Opportunity is not. And I think when you show people that they can create their own opportunities, um, leveraging the skills they already have, then, you know, you put them in a frame of mind. Of thinking that anything is is possible to achieve with hard work and dedication. Oh man, you dropped two good gems out there. Thank you for that. You want to add anything to that, Evan? Uh, no, I, I think I would add to like, you know, few things that I've come to notice um, throughout life is that you know, no matter what's going on, like in your household, what's what what's going on in your community, what's going on in your school, like you can really overcome those things. And one thing I used to hear people say all the time that I really didn't kind of get keen to until I got older was that like, hey, this is mental. 
right? Like, you know, first it starts with your mental. And then if you could, you know, really uh, improve the way you view things or the way you think about things, you could really change your life. And that's actually true, right? Like you could go through some of the toughest times, but it's like, how do you look at those scenarios, right? A lot of times people look at scenarios just as disadvantages instead of it looking at it as like life lessons or an opportunity to learn something or a way to build grit or a way to build uh, just experience that's going to allow them to get ready for the next thing. You know, the way I look at life is like life is just a, a road full of hurdles, right? And eventually like you're jumping over one hurdle to just jump over another one. Mm-hmm. And life, you're just going to keep jumping over hurdles. But essentially, like when you're jumping over those hurdles, you're learning how to jump over the next one. So you know, okay, when I'm getting to this next hurdle, if I pick my left leg up a little sooner, it's going to be easier. Or if I jump with both feet, it's going to be easier. And that's the way that I kind of view things very early on. But I also understand like not everyone is Jessica and I, right? Mm-hmm. Like not everyone is very proactive individually. And some people you actually need to have you have to show them what is possible um, so that they can, you know, accelerate themselves. And so I think with that sense, you know, that's where not just, you know, um, giving people uh, mentorships uh, works because mentorship is important. But I also think access and opportunities is also important. Right. So like you'll have people that are very creative very entrepreneurial, but if they're not sometimes put in the right rooms or the right platforms to execute on that creativity, it might not go somewhere. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it's also very important that you're going, you have to understand like everyone's different, right? Like that's what makes uh, us human, right? So mm-hmm. in the sense that some people are going to be those people like a Jessica and me that can get on Google and figure it out and hack things and like, hey, I'm going to figure it out myself and strategize around and make the right connections I need to make in order to move myself out of whatever environment that I'm in currently. But then there's going to be certain other people you have to show like, hey, here's the platform. Let me show you how to use it. You know, this is what you have to do to make this lever work. And I'm using this as an example. And then eventually they get the hang of the system and then they know now they know how to use the system accurately so that they can progress themselves. So I think those are like I touched on a few things there, but I think it's important to understand that like everyone has the ability to move forward out what out out of whatever uh, challenge that's in front of them. But sometimes certain people need to be given um, certain methods in order to do that, whether that's the Google access for me and Jessica to figure it out ourselves <laughs> mm-hmm. or showing people how to figure it out. And once they get the hang of it, they'll know how to move doing it moving forward. Which is a perfect, great answer, both of you, which is a perfect segue into New York Tech, because I think that is a, a great living example of not only mentoring people, not only giving them access and opportunities, but 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 putting it all together and creating something that is really changing the culture right now in New York City. And I guarantee in 10 years, the world. So with that being said, how did y'all or how did New York Tech come about? Yeah, for sure. So. You know, Evan and I, a uh, little backstory, we met in 2009 and we had completed a summer leadership program with Ernst and Young. And when I saw him at the conference, I was like, man, this guy looks familiar. And so finally, when we got a chance to connect, we realized that we both went to Syracuse University. And then after the conference, we jumped on the A train that was Brooklyn bound. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened that when I was about to say bye to him, he was getting off at the same stop. So <laughs> wow. he actually grew up about like five blocks away wow. from my entire life. 
but I didn't really, um, we didn't really meet each other until, you know, we were at that, that room in Ernst and Young and we didn't meet each other until college. And so from then on, because of the fact that like, you know, we kind of grew up in similar communities and we saw a lot of um, kind of the same things. There was an instant connection and he truly has become my best friend. And I think that when when I started working in in technology and Evan started working in technology, we realized that there was a huge uh, disproportionate gap between what we were able to access versus what communities um, that we're from and that are, are in New York City are able to access, we started asking ourselves, well, like, how did I get here? Um, and then that question became, well, then how do I get other people here? And when we got to that question of how do I get other people here, Evan and I met at a local Starbucks in Syracuse, New York, um, and we started just like writing down really cool ideas about, you know, how do we actually get other people here? And there were four themes that really came about. And that really governs what it is that we do with New York on tech. And we felt the four things that really get people into tech and really get people into industry and just opportunities in general is development, having the actual skills to be successful in the field, mentoring having the appropriate career champions to really help you propel your career forward and mentors, um, network, having the right relationships of people who are willing to open doors of opportunity for you, and then access, having the uh, professional experiences that make you competitive and not just someone who says, oh, I'm interested in tech, but you have no um, kind of way to, to show that interest or show that someone has validated that internship that interest through like an enrichment program or a summer internship experience at a big global company. And so that's, that was how, you know, the creation of New York on tech came about and, you know, a little bit of history. We weren't New York on tech at first. We were actually Brooklyn on tech mm. and Brooklyn on tech, you know, there were actually schools in the Bronx and schools in Queens and schools in Missouri and schools all over the country, kind of like just reaching out, trying to figure out if there were resources like ours um, in their local communities. And I think once we started seeing that, that kind of uh, interest, we realized that the problem that we were trying to solve was really big. Um, and we said, well, with there being about a million students here locally in New York City, just in the public school system, we can really change the landscape of what opportunities look like here in the city. Um, and think about, you know, what it would look like as a America on tech five to 10 years from now. Mm. And Eva, can you speak to the actual the timeline of all these events um, to paint to paint another picture of, of, of how it kind of transpired from idea to um, to the Brooklyn on tech to then now New York on tech. Cool. Um, I don't want to damage the timeline, but <laughs> uh, picking up with where Jessica kind of started. Essentially, I was still finishing up my master's program. Jessica had already started her career at one of the consulting firms that she was working for, um, and she she had came up to Syracuse. We were meeting in the cafe. And essentially, we're just trying to think through, like, you know, how do we make an impact and what was important and what do we think needed to be put in place uh, to essentially do that? Um, and then that's kind of how we came up with the four pillars for New York on tech. I mean, sorry, for Brooklyn on tech originally. And then what we initially started doing was just like once we designed that idea, the next few months was a lot of just like research. Right. So like before you go into the market, like 
really just understanding what are the organizations out there? How are they doing? What are they doing? How are they doing it? Like, how are they reaching students? How are they impacting students? What partnerships do they have? You really want to understand the ecosystem before existing anything. So before we even launched Brooklyn Tech, after we had that idea phase, which was all on a pile of napkins, we <laughs> then did the market research, right? So really understand, like, who were the stakeholders out there? And then we would start to go meeting with people. Like, so, okay, so how did you create a nonprofit? And we spent hours, and I won't lie to you when I say this, like, we spent hours in the library <laughs> um, just really taking out every book there was on, like, how to start a nonprofit. And one thing I quickly realized was that the books gave you very high level information. And the way that we had, we were going to have to learn how to start a nonprofit <laughs> was basically just like to do it ourselves and figure it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the, the success that we had with building a nonprofit came from, I would say, twofold, which was like us figuring out on our own and us like just meeting with people that were willing to like share information with us. So the, the take it back to that timeline, you know, after we did that market research and kind of seeing that there was a market opportunity for us, we then launched to become Brooklyn on Tech. We started with two partnering schools in Brooklyn. We did fairly well with them. That then scaled to nine schools. What year? That, uh, that was 2014. Yeah, we started with two yeah. schools in 2014. 2014. That's only a couple years ago. That's why. Okay, cool. Then we scaled from, uh, then we went to 26 high schools. And now next year, we'll mm-hmm. probably have, we went to 36, right? Mm, no. So. <laughs> <laughs> 14, we had two schools and then 2015 for our second class um we had nine schools and now we work with 26 schools and the next year right now we'll probably have about 50 high schools from the partnerships that we're closing with the school so it's been a lot um and sometimes i've realized that like when you're building something like like you just said fairly recent mm-hmm. but like when you're building something it feel like 100 years ago um, cause you, you're so invested into it and putting a lot of time into what you're doing. Man, that is, that is crazy. Um, 2014 to 2017, going from two schools and nine schools to this year, 26 schools to, to 50 schools. So, um, there's a lot of, a lot of ways or, or questions that I could ask for our, for our viewing audience because we have, uh, we always have a wide range. Some people that are, early on in entrepreneurship career, some people that are thinking about it, some people that just like to hear stories. But I do want to ask, um, and I know there's a lot of challenges uh, on the way, but starting out, what were some of the biggest challenges that y'all faced and how did you how did you tackle them? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump right into that. I think you have to don't seek external validation, right? And I'll say that again. Don't seek external validation. Like I remember when we were first building the website, for Brooklyn on Tech, and me and Jessica were really hyped. It was like, oh man, this is gonna be great. We're gonna put it out on <laughs> Facebook. Everybody gonna go crazy and likes and shares. And like, you know, we launched and it was nothing. It was, you know, it was pretty quiet. You got a couple <laughs> friends that say, oh, that's great, right? And, you know, and pretty so, quiet. right? So, what I say that to say is like, when you're building something, it's a long path you have to go down, right? And if you're building it for the wrong reasons, you're going to realize that very soon. Um, so I think whatever you're doing, uh, whatever idea you have, make sure it's something that you truly believe in. And then that when everyone else doesn't see the value in it up front, 
or when everyone else isn't like cheering for you on the sideline up front, that you still have the internal motivation and the willpower to keep pushing yourself forward. Um, so I think that's very important, especially in the beginning stages before, you know, any legal formations, before any, you know, closing of a deal, before, you know, anything um, that you internally are invested into what you're about to build. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I definitely agree. And I think for me, like, um, you know, like we were doing New York on tech while we were still working out at yeah. one point. And so for me, it was all about like vision and execution and having a very clear strategy. Because I think when we started, I had a nine to nine and then I had like a 10 to two in the morning. And my 10 to 2 in the morning was always Brooklyn on tech and uh, New York on tech now. Um, but we were working full, we were working full time. You know, New York on tech was a pure passion project that we did market research on, that we were trying to find how we add value to tech education. And we never thought that it would be something, you know, that we would take full time. It was literally us just trying to provide people opportunity. And then, like, you know, we got accepted into a fellowship program that gave, you know, a, a pretty decent, like, um, seed grant. And I was like, you know, I think the problem we're trying to solve is pretty big. So I'm going to take this full time. And at that point, I had already, you know, had work experience. And I told myself, like, if this doesn't work out, then, like, you know, that I, I'm not going to be any less employable next year. I still have the same skills that I did, you know, mm-hmm. last year. Um, And so I think like, you know, understanding that like your passions are going to lead to your vision and it's going to lead to like the world, you know, conspiring to support you. And I think like, you know, those 10 to twos that we pulled to be in the office at 8 a.m. the next morning on only like five hours of sleep, like they were totally worth it. And going back to what Evan was saying about, you know, having a clear um you know, having a clear understanding that like something that you're building takes a long time. I think people, you know, usually say like it takes about um, six years to become an overnight success. And it's it's truly, you know, it's truly true. Like never did we think that two years ago when we started this, we would be where we're at now. But there has been a process in place and it hasn't been, you know, all easy. There was a lot of learning curves. There were things that, you know, that we learned, that we learned, things that we're still learning. And, you know, you just have to be resilient and you have to have grit and you have to, you know, be, um, you know, unapologetic about what it is your vision is and and really having a plan to execute it and not. Um, really looking for external validation to say like, yes, the work that you're doing is good work. Man, that's that's phenomenal. And if you had to say, how did you get your first few schools to buy in before that you before you showcased that you've added any value or anything like that? It's like, what do those conversations look like or the framework? Because there might be people on this line where they have this great idea, but they're struggling or they're 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 pacing around on how to get people to buy in their first couple customers, their first couple clients or whatnot. So what mentality did y'all have before y'all created, like had a history of success or anything like that to get your first few schools on board to what y'all were making? Yeah, I think just like with any entrepreneur, like your first couple sales uh, or people that truly believe in you are going to be people that you're personally connected to already. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's that be a family member, a friend, a colleague. So 
and the example of New York on Tech, the first two schools that we secured came through like personal contacts that we had who were teachers at those schools, right? So essentially we knew some teachers, we reached out, a few got back to us, we had a few meetings with schools, and then we successfully closed those two schools after a series of meetings with like the teachers. Then you have to meet with the teachers, you get like a guidance counselor or like some dean, mm-hmm. and then you have to meet with the dean, eventually work your way up where you're now even meeting with the principal or the person that actually had like, you know, the power to sign off on the partnership. And so essentially that's what happened with us. We leveraged our personal contacts um, to get into those two first schools, but you have to come prepared, right? So, I mean, like, <laughs> don't think just because you have a personal end, that's, that's automatically going to secure the win. Right. Like, we, like, no, we came with the PowerPoint decks, you know, we had it printed out. We had the PowerPoint on a, like a, on a flash drive, just in case the person wanted a presentation. Like we practiced the night before, probably a few days before, like really just understanding uh, what we were going to say. Because I think, you know, I won't go too deep into this in case this is something you want to ask later, but as an entrepreneur, like you have to understand the market that you're talking to. Like when you're building a product or a service, the, the what you value from your product or service will not be the same thing mm. that customer values from the product or service mm-hmm. or or if the and what the customer you know what i mean so like really understanding like the passion that jessica and i have for new york on tech mm-hmm. may be the same passion that the school had but the school may see it as another benefit right so like really understanding that e- that kind of the outcomes and what was all attached to what we were doing and making sure that you speak directly to the person that you're speaking to because when you're speaking to a teacher and the things that you're talking about with the teacher is going to be a little different than the yeah. thing that we're talking about with the principal. And mm-hmm. like when we're talking to each other, the things that we're talking about are a little different. So like really understanding your 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 audience. So I think that's also important. So personal contacts, leverage them, but it comes down to you being on your A game in regards to being able to secure uh, those first kind of uh, contracts and, and partnerships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to add to that too, if you do a really good job, then people refer you. So, you know, most of the schools that we work with um, have been from straight referral of everyone being really excited about the program and then wanting to vouch for us to provide these services to students in other schools. Um, and so always, like, I would say um, under promise, over deliver. Mm-hmm. Uh, because clients will tell clients that tell clients. And essentially you start building a brand like that. And I think after your first year, you do have data to show, you know, how good your students are doing. And you, if you show that, like, you actually did a good job with the program, then people are willing to vouch um, for you and your work. Got you. And then did y'all both leave your, your full-time jobs at the same time or did you leave first, Jess? Uh, I left, I left first. Um, uh, I left first, I left in 2015. Mm-hmm. And that's when we got the seed funding. And then Evan, um, Evan left in 2016, in the oh. beginning of 2016. Okay. And then your first, did your first few, did y'all, did y'all charge? Was it a free service just to get started? Like, I mean, I don't, y'all have to do numbers and whatnot, but I just kind of, I just wanted to try to get that frame. Yeah. So the first, the first year was like a pilot. And I think that's okay. also important too. So the first year was a pilot. Then after you do well with them, you can convert them into customers. And then everyone moving forward is a customer. 
Okay, I got you. I got you. 110 on that. Okay, 110 on that. And before we move into our present day, do we do we start to talk about your what a typical day look like and managing teams and um, entrepreneurship advice for all our uh, hustlers out there? This uh, yeah. this is on. I did want to ask, um, knowing what you know now, what would you tell yourself when y'all two were in that library writing on napkins, think about this idea? What would you tell yourselves if you can go back in time and be like, yo, uh, let me give you a little bit of advice before you even start the journey. Knowing what y'all know now, what would y'all tell yourselves back in the library? Uh, two things come to mind, and then I'll probably have some other things to say after Jessica uh, gives her insight. I think uh, one big thing to understand is the importance of leveraging existing infrastructure, right? Mm. So a lot of the times when you come to market with your products, like the first thing people are going to say is like, what makes you different? Or why is your program better than the other person? And you, yes, you need to know your competitive advantage and like, what are your differentiators that make you stand out? But also sometimes scale back and say, okay, this is the idea I have. Who else is doing this in my market? And can I influence their already existing infrastructure, right? Because sometimes when you look at already existing infrastructures, that can save you a lot of capital that goes into building that infrastructure. It saves you a lot of hours in regards to like figuring things out because it's already built out. And all you're coming in to do is essentially enhance that infrastructure. So I think it would be um, understand that existing infrastructure. I forgot my second one, so give me a second. Um, I mean, for me, I would say like Nikes, just do it. I mean, I think like a lot of people get stuck in analysis paralysis. Um, and that wasn't like when we were in the library is because we didn't know, you know, what was the first step. And I think at one point we were just like, we just have to do it. Um, so I think if I could go back, I wouldn't have spent the 10 hours in the library. I probably <laughs> spent like two hours in the library. Because you literally can spend your entire year just researching but you will not know what is required of you unless you actually go out there and do it and i think that there's not enough people saying just do it you know i think like you know the conver the conversation is always like oh you know it has to be intentional and yeah it does have to be intentional but intentionality also comes with experience too and you can't know what you don't know unless you're put in a situation where you have to learn it and so if I could go back then, I would have spent two hours in the library <laughs> and then eight hours actually executing as opposed to 10 hours actually researching that day. Um, because I think after the hundredth book, you know, it got to a point where it was like, all right, well, I feel like I wasted my time. Um, so don't get caught in analysis paralysis. Just, you know, be ready and, and be ready to just uh, be resilient with anything that comes your way and be willing to learn. Yeah. Uh, the other one that I have that I have forgotten initially was like always design with a customer in mind. Right. So I think, you know, like sometimes people can have really cool ideas um, and not sometimes, you know, think of the customer or if this is something that the customer is going to want. Like um, Jessica kind of lowered it, but we stayed in the library way more than 10 hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, to be honest with you, like when we first started New York on tech, like Jessica was saying earlier, it was purely out of passion. We weren't thinking about, you know, how do you actually turn this into a business? Um, and But essentially, because I think, and I won't just say this, but like 
coming from corporate backgrounds, like having an understanding of technology, but then also like the financial side. Like I studied economics as an undergrad, did a, a ton of, you know, financial, uh, you know, finance work. And then Jessica studied accounting undergrads, did a bunch of accounting like work. We understood like both sides of the business, like the tech side and then also the business side. So right off the bat, we were once we realized like, hey, this could be more than a passion and we could actually turn this into a business that could, could potentially be scalable, we were able to kind of like, you know, scope out a customer and then test test it and see if this was a service that a customer would be willing to pay for. To kind of lower that down for the, the everyday entrepreneur, I think it's important to do that same thing. It's like, yes, have your product or your service that you're passionate about, but also try to get out there in the market, like Jessica said, just do it and see if you can actually attract a customer. Because the big thing that you're going to need to make yourself sustainable is you're going to need that customer that can help you, you know, bring in the cash flow so that you can grow your organization. So I think that's one of the big things is like, think about a leveraging existing infrastructure so that sometimes the process isn't so hard up front and you mm. can uh, learn with other people that have been in the space and eventually you're helping them innovate and improve their structures. Um, but sometimes that's on a case by case scenario. So I have to put that out there. That's not always going to be the case with everything. Um, and then two, design with a customer in mind, but make sure that your customer is willing to pay for the product or service that you're offering. Because sometimes what might happen is you're designing something, but you realize after you speak with the customers and you get some you know, insight from your target markets that you may take a pivot because you design one service, but you realize that they're willing to pay for the other side, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to use it in general terms here, but like understanding those things, I think is very key, essentially um, when you first starting off. Yeah, amen, amen. And and to, to transition to the present day, um, I, I think a fair question would be, and I think you were alluding to it earlier, but I think y'all can give some good insight. What what has what cha what changed what changed in your mind or what do you believe businesses have to change when a model when your model that you, you created as a passion product changes into having to create a have a more business model mindset because i think that is where a lot of social entrepreneurs people that ha have hearts of gold and they start these things and passion projects and then they they turn into nonprofits and i think that's one area where they miss out on is flipping the switch or is the, do y'all believe from y'all experience a, a, a switch needs to be flipped to start thinking more business like because if you always think oh this is this is this is a, a, a project at a heart then a lot of times you start to end up coming short in the cash flow because you're, you're not you're not attacking it maybe um in a more business mindset do you yeah definitely i mean i think that I think that there are a lot of amazing projects, right, going mm -hmm. on in, in communities all across America. But I don't think all of the projects have to become businesses, honestly, mm -hmm. because I think that um, there are a lot of nonprofits, you know, trying to solve really big societal issues in our country. And sometimes, you know, it's actually partnering with somebody else that's already doing the work and seeing how you can be helpful. Or if your goals, literally, sometimes your goal is just to do one or two day workshops, right? Maybe you don't want to have whole programs that you're trying to monetize. I really think it really depends on who the creator is and what their goals are. Because sometimes, like, not every passion project is something that needs to be monetized. I think for... For, for me, you know, I wanted to do New York on Tech full time. It was something that I saw myself dedicating um, my life to. And so 
because I decided that I wanted to dedicate my life to it, then yeah, I did need to be flexible in terms of thinking about how we were going to bring in cash flow because I couldn't just be um, a passionate entrepreneur, but then like not be able to like pay my bills. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, I think that like not all passion projects need to be monetized. I don't think that every um, community initiative has to be monetized. I don't think that every passion project needs to turn into a nonprofit or a social enterprise. I think um, that it really depends on the creator's goals and how far they are willing to take those goals. And because I think we wanted to take New York on tech really far, you know, it did require for us to put on our business that we had and think about how do we develop a business model based on the um, organization that we are building so that we're able to have longevity um, as opposed to something that dies down because we didn't bring in any cash. Uh, I think I think Jessica gave a lot of good insight there. Um, what I will also add, so one, I think it does fall a lot onto the, um, the actual creator of the product or service um, is, yes, at one point in the game, if you realize this is something that could potentially be a business, you have to turn on that business switch. Mm -hmm. But I think this also segues into like the importance of building a team, right? Mm -hmm. Go uh, ahead, open up. <laughs> in the sense, <laughs> like, not everyone is going to be the business person, right? Like, sometimes you are that like the the person with the heart of gold, like really care about you know the impact, and you need that team member who also cares about the impact and has a heart of gold as well, right? Let's let's keep that straight. You want everyone to be kind of on the same path with that, but you also need that partner that has more of the business sense, or is or if doesn't have the business sense, is more willing to you know be on that business side and learn the skills needed. Mm -hmm. So you're going to need that person that's going to be thinking about the financial models and the growth plan and the scalability and the partnerships that are going to be needed in order for you to grow out the business. So I think, yes, um, at a certain point, you got to turn on the business hat. Maybe it doesn't need to be you per se, but you need to build a team around you um, so that you can make the appropriate business decisions for the organization. But also hitting back on what Jessica said is like also understanding that not everything needs to be a business um, and that some things can be more of a, of a passion project or just a way for you to impact the community as a whole. So I think, you know, you, you got to actually think through all that and kind of see like, cause this is on a case by case scenario, right? Mm -hmm, like, yep. So you got to understand who you are. Um, and then where that, where, what we're saying kind of fits for you. Amen. Amen. And then I know you, you, you spoke in that T word and I want y'all to kind of open up on that because I know through three years and, and how the growth that y'all have, have had, um, I know it just hasn't been y'all. So can y'all speak on who else has been played a pivotal role as well as how y'all have grown at working on and developing a, a true team to kind of manifest this dream that y'all had with Brooklyn on Tech, which started as Brooklyn on Tech and now is New York on Tech? Yeah. So I think one of the best things uh, up front is that I get to work with my best friend, Jessica. I think that sets a big foundation for the growth that we've had because to tell you the truth, like business is a very emotional roller coaster, right? Um, and so, you know, sometimes attitudes conflict with each other or different opinions on things. Um, but essentially, you have to have a good relationship with someone in order for you to do good business. So I think because me and Jessica have been friends for a long period of time before we went into business with each other, that helped a lot in regards to how we team together. 
and how we're how we understand each other as individuals as well as like business professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's important to say. Also, you know, we've had a lot of help in the sense of like we have an amazing board of directors, we have an amazing board of advisors, we have an amazing group of uh, mentors. Um, we had up front when we first kind of started, we had some people that we hired like part time to do certain things. And then eventually we started to hire full time staff to work with New York on tech. Um, so, you know, that's kind of been high level kind of understanding of like the headcount of people that have kind of helped us. Everything from like us being like a two person team and like supporting each other to like mm-hmm. the board of directors, uh, board of advisors, the mentors, the part time employees. Mm-hmm. And then to now like the full-time staff. Yeah. No, I would have to say the same thing. I think like when we were first starting out, it was just me and Evan with a vision. And then like once we realized that we couldn't do it alone, that's when we started employing the expertise of people that could help us along the way. And so, you know, we, you know, we get people to teach our classes. We get people to mentor the students. We um, get our board of directors to open up their company doors. We're able to um, think about what it is that we need for an organization and we do like an annual um like an annual planning session where mm-hmm. we really identify like all of the resources that we're going to need in terms of full-time staff in terms of part-time staff board members board of advisors and then start planning from there you know it started as two and now we have like i would say there's mad people involved <laughs> mad people like what how many how many um, as far so as like team have- team um, so we have our seven person board of directors. I have a seven person board of advisors. Um, we have four people on staff aside, outside of me and Evan. And um, we have a 20, uh, uh, a six person mentor council. We have about like 60 volunteers. We have like 12 instructors. And so um, it's a it's a big team. Yeah, that's huge. And um, quickly, could you share how y'all been able to 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 get such volunteer support? Because I looked online and y'all last year, I think I think uh, don't, I don't I might misquote, but had well over 10,000 hours of volunteer time of instruction and whatnot. And that's freaking that's, that's huge for a company. It's only been around a couple of years to have other people that are very, very committed, not only to helping y'all, but to helping the students that you serve. So could you say what is a critical component from getting that type of support from people that are not getting paid? Yeah. So one, I want to throw like extra realness into this part right here. Please do. Like, um, yes, we've been very fortunate to have a lot of, you know, volunteer hours. Um, essentially to kind of go back to what I was saying before, like, a lot of that came from like our friends at first, right? It was like, you know, you reach out to your buddies and your mm-hmm. homegirls that are working in the tech industry and you kind of say like, hey, this is what I'm doing. I would love for you to get involved if you have the time. And then a few of them agree, right? To be mm-hmm. honest with you. Um, some will be busy. Um, and then they come out, they have a good time. And then eventually they recommend friends, right? Mm-hmm. And, and their friends recommend friends. And then like people, you start to get attention on like articles and you get media buzz and you get a social media following. So like more people start to find out about you. So that's kind of how we've been able to grow, uh, from a volunteer perspective in regards to like the mentors and everything like that. But I think it's also important to be like, when you have those people volunteering their time, like the most important thing to people, when you realize it as you get older, is time, mm-hmm. right? Like your paycheck can go up, like you can get cool things, but like what really matters is time. So like when the when people come to New York on Tech, <clears throat> we try to like make them have a great time. Like we try to facilitate, you know, networking opportunities so that 
they're not just, you know, paying it for for our kids, but in a sense, they're also getting a win out of it where they can network with other professionals and things like that. And I can go into more depth with it, but I'm trying to show you, like, it has to be a win-win. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the way that I said I want to keep it real here is that, like, I have to show a lot of respect and, and love for the initial mentors that we had as Brooklyn on tech, because like, while now we have a, like a lovely office um, space, like in the financial district, and we partner with like leading organizations to host our students, like in the beginning, like Jessica and I were literally like sometimes having our students meet us at the mall or like, you know, public areas. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that had a lot to do with like, being scrappy up, up front. Um, but that allowed us to essentially like see and get the support that we needed. Right. Um, cause we went above and beyond the amount of hours that we wanted to do with our students. Like we really enjoyed like teaching them about technology. And that was very in the beginning. Um, but essentially like once we showed them that we can teach them about technology and that we had a business, um, then we were able to scale it to, you know, something, that was really cool and big. Um, but so that's why I'm always supportive of those initial people that volunteer their time. And a lot of those people that came with us in the beginning, uh, when we, when we were utilizing like free space, um, are still with us today. Mm -hmm. And a lot of friends are with us. So I, I try to paint you that picture in the beginning of like, you know, when you think about the entrepreneurial story of like people starting out in their garage or something like that. Mm -hmm. And like, garage you you next to the heaters and your moms and dad's tools and things like that and then eventually like that garage environment becomes an office um so i you know i try to say that like those people that are with you from the beginning like mm-hmm. you always have to show like extra crazy appreciation um because they part of their time is what helped you grow as an organization as well yeah yeah i will also say regarding evan's thing about time like I think, you know, you need to be organized and be very clear about what your volunteer expectations are, as opposed to just coming into an organization and not know, you know, not knowing what you're really committing to. Like a lot of um, like, you know, I participated in many nonprofits before and I would like be a volunteer, but like I never knew what I was getting into. And sometimes it was like super outrageous commitments that were never communicated in the beginning. And so had I known what I was getting into, I would have been a productive member of that group, you know. But I think uh, one thing that we try to emphasize here is giving volunteers very reasonable expectations, um, being very respectful of their time and their schedules but by providing dates up front, you know, giving them access to all communications up front, you know, onboarding them to things like Slack and Google Groups, um, and just making it very easy for them to participate as opposed to, you know, having them come and actually build, you know, your organization for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know, you want them to, you know, you want them to be involved. You don't want them to, like, feel like, you know, you're, you know, they're your employees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, y'all hit up some some great points. And before, because I know I wanted to do, a, 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 um, I got to, I want to ask one question before we move on question as far as because i know we haven't talked about the students that y'all do serve um on on this on this on this show a lot and we don't have a lot of time to 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 go in depth but i did want to address um or have y'all address 
what is what do y'all believe the biggest hurdle that that the students um, that y'all face as far as career wise or just in general? And then how does New York on Tech solve or, or have what kind of results have y'all seen? How y'all been able to solve that biggest hurdle for the students that y'all do serve? Yeah. I mean, I think I said this a little bit earlier. I truly believe that the problem is opportunity. It's not talent. I think talent is everywhere and opportunity is very scarce. And sometimes opportunities don't fall in the laps of students who really, really, really are deserving simply because of lack of access to information and a lack of access to relationships. And so I can give you many use cases um, about students in in the New York on Tech program who have graduated, but I'll focus on a few. First, you know, there was a student um, named Jeremy. He was an amazing kid. Um, He was a senior when he came to New York on Tech, and he had been learning how to code by himself uh, for a very long time. And when we interviewed him, that was something that he was very clear about, where he was like, you know, my knowledge has taken me, but so far, you know, there's no online resource that can take me um, right now to help me learn very in-demand industry things and industry tools. And so when he came to New York on Tech, he was super ambitious and he was so excited to be a part of the program. And I think he fully took advantage of every single aspect of it. He had a great relationship with his mentor, Rob. Rob opened up opportunities um, for Jeremy at, at companies he was connected to. And then ultimately, after Jeremy graduated from our program, he went and did an, a paid internship over the summer with Warby Parker's engineering department, where he was getting paid very, very well and compensated for the skills that he was um, that he was able to acquire throughout our program. And now he's you know, in the middle of his freshman year at a college in the United States, and he's doing amazing things in computer science. And then we also had a student named Raven, um, similar story, grew up in Brownsville, Brooklyn, um, attended high school in Brownsville, Brooklyn, came to New York on tech because her school had no, um, you know, computer science or computer engineering program, but she had an interest in it because she was learning it by herself. She came and we accelerated her. Um, And then Ultimately, last summer, she did the Google Computer Science Summer Institute. And so I think for us, we know that opportunities are 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 what are what stops students from getting into industries. And those opportunities can come to them unless they have the right relationships. And so we see ourselves as an accelerator and an incubator for really amazing kids and really amazing teens who have this passion for technology but have no way to kind of demystify what the space actually looks like and give them the real industry tools that are going to make them competitive for these kinds of 21st century opportunities. Mm, nah, that's I think you put a nail and a coffin on that, and I think you spoke very eloquently on that. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And before we uh, we we enter the future round, I did want to ask a couple quick questions for for all those out there for for three areas, and this would be rapid fire. If, for those people that have ideas about a nonprofit, but they really don't have um, limited amount of funds, and their connections aren't really that diverse, to say if they don't have a master's degree or they're not in, in any networks, what was the what would be the best piece of advice you would give those? I would say definitely look into joining like accelerator programs or you know incubators um particularly around the industry that you're interested in so like there's a lot of kind of like you know social impact and nonprofit and education um fellowships and accelerators that people can apply to 
online. And it's as easy as probably like just Googling like, you know, nonprofit uh, fellowship or like nonprofit accelerator and seeing what comes up. And I think, you know, through there, you'll start to be able to broaden your network, uh, get access to some capital, but most importantly, um, be able to get thought leadership around like how to create the business model and the growth strategy for the idea that you have. And I always say, use things like LinkedIn and Twitter. Don't be afraid to, if you don't have a relationship, don't be afraid to forge it. You know, the amazing thing about social media and these platforms is that they give you access to all kinds of people that can help answer your question. You just have to put yourself out there. Mm -hmm. Nah, great, 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 great. And also, this is just on the top of my head. If you were, if you were like to lead the Department of Education and your one of your roles was to implement programming for for minorities within the, the school, the, the education system, what how, what angle would y'all take on improving those relations and improving the outcome? Yeah, for sure. I mean, honestly, I would really like to see um, more industry aligned curriculum and experiences. I think that, you know, when I reflect on what work life looks like for me and then I reflect on what education looks like for me, those two experiences were very disconnected. You know, nothing, very few of what I learned in college and in grad school is, is, is actually what I applied when I was on the job. And I think that the way that we really prepare students for um, careers and prepare students for opportunities of the future is by giving them those things really early on. And so I would like to see um, more alignment for students when it comes to, you know, what jobs and careers and industry looks like for them while they're still in school. So I don't know if I would implement more work-based learning programs. I don't know if I would, um, you know, allocate one day a week to make sure all students are doing an internship and it's a requirement for graduation. But those are some, uh, you know, the high level things I think needs to happen. Like students need to have more industry aligned um, knowledge, information and experiences before, you know, they graduate from college so that when they do graduate from college, they're actually prepared for the opportunities that come their way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that I think Jessica said a great um, note there. I think it's just be like the more important. So in like technology education as well, like, you know, luckily um, there's been a lot of big push in New York City, particularly around like, you know, the importance of technology education. Um, I think it's important to understand that, like in the time that we're in now, like technology is as important as like reading, writing and math. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter like what industry you go into, like it's either powered by technology or supported by technology. And essentially you need to understand how technology works, whether you're an entrepreneur or an employee. Um, so I think, you know, but then I, that aligns to what Jessica says about like the industry tools and methodologies and practices. So I think it's like, you know, continue to push tech education. Um, Cause I'm a big believer that like technology is the great equalizer um, because it, it offers you the opportunity to like access information and to like really create your own businesses and to, you know, a whole slew of things. So I'm very pro advocate uh, for tech education in the school system. Yeah. 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 No, nah, that's great. Both great answers. And in our future round, I just have two questions for our future round. Um, what's next for New York on tech in 2017? What can, what can everybody be expecting in 2017 to see from New York on tech that you can disclose now? You know, uh, for 2017, just continue to do good work, right? I think, um, 
like when people say New York on tech, I just want them to say, like, yeah, they're doing really good work, right? And like as simple as that, like if people can say that, like I'm happy. So in 2017, <laughs> continue to work our way up, uh, you know, work with amazing kids like we have been already, work with amazing volunteers, amazing companies, uh, continue to hire uh, top talent. Um, and people that are really dedicated to the mission and vision that we're trying to push. Um, but most importantly, as we continue to grow as an organization, that anytime someone hears the word New York on tech or mentions us in a sentence, they say they do amazing work because that's what we came here to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think if I could add to that, too, I think for us, part of, um, you know, having people saying they're doing amazing work is storytelling. And so for us, um, we're in the process right now of collecting testimonials and collecting stories of our students and their experiences in technology or in their communities or how they're leveraging technology to solve their problems um, in order to share that via the World Wide Web. Because oftentimes, um, you know, I feel like there's not a scarcity anymore in terms of like finding advice for young professionals and and individuals, you know, who are our age. Um, But I find that like, Sometimes the voices of people who are younger than us, who are in high school, who are in college, who are in middle school, you know, they often get silenced. And I'm always about like, well, what about the kids? <laughs> so um, I'd like to, uh, you know, I think part of saying they do good work is really amplifying their stories and making sure that we're putting that in, um, you know, in the World Wide Web so that the world can see that we're here and, you know, we're here to stay. Uh, no, nah, that's that's a perfect reflection right there, because I think about it all the time. I think now we live in a society where if you're a young adult, there's there's so much access to information programs and information about opportunities. But then you think of high schoolers and middle schoolers uh, oftentimes, you know, in the household, uh, nine times out of 10, you're not getting heard from your parents. And then you it's a lot of peer to peer relationships. But sometimes those peer to peer, they might not have the access or the knowledge or whatnot. And those that do um, aren't usually the the main people that are talking and sharing information. So if you can get it from 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 a peer or you can have, have it from their perspective, that can have a huge impact and really create the generational shift once peers start advocating for changes in technology, change in education and reform and all that, rather than people that are older or are considered authority figures. Um, so I, I, y'all, you hit that on the head. And last question of the future round, when it's all said and done personally, um, how do y'all, how do y'all want to be remembered? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think I've said this so many times. It's like when I am, you know, an old woman who is in, uh, I don't know when I'll die, honestly. But <laughs> Please don't go there. I, I want to be able to say, you know, at the time of my passing, that at that point I did every single thing that I wanted to do and that I had no regrets, regardless of what I wanted to do and the outcomes of what that was. I want to be able to say that, like, at least I tried. Um, and so literally it's just passing away um, with my legacy being like, hey, Jessica was the type of person who... Um, had an idea, went for the idea, and regardless of whether or not the idea succeeded or the idea failed, um, you know, she at least tried. Yeah, I think, you know, Jessica said kind of the same thing that I have in mind. I think, you know, just like when I'm old and I'm in my mind thinking about life, like I just feel um, good with the life that I've lived from everything from a personal perspective, like family to friends uh, relationships to, you know, having to be like a good father, um, to my future kids, um, to just being a great business professional as well. 
and just being remembered as someone that like you know wasn't willing i mean wasn't afraid to like chase his dreams um and yeah i think that if, if i could have that type of life where i just like wasn't afraid to chase the dream um if the dream came true or i learned from the process of trying to build it um to just being a great you know man in general and like a family man and a friend uh that would be the ideal situation for me no nah, man I, I love those i love those answers man and uh before we enter our coach change round which is the last round rapid fire rapid question um this just thought did bump into my mind i know as we enter 2017 and first of all congratulations i know i mentioned the intro intro but congratulations on the forbes 30 under 30 and starting to get and i y'all i know y'all been been recognized by a lot of platforms but really starting to dial in and get acclaim for the great work y'all been doing the last three years which preceded by the work hard work that y'all did the the last decade so congratulations on that thank, thank you. you appreciate thank it thank you and but also how do, how do y'all plan on or how do y'all deal with those um or as as y'all grow i know y'all have a lot of opportunity to everybody's reaching out for questions on nonprofit. everybody's reaching out to to inquiries on new york tech and then you still have to do the work but then you also planning for the future so how how are you going forward how are you going to plan with when when now there's a lot more access to communication to y'all y'all have to plan there's a lot of moving pieces within your organization so going forward though how do y'all balance um everything that's a great question. Um, Greg, I've learned how to say no. Um, <laughs> honestly, I think that like, I think it, it's too, it's unrealistic and it's not uh, physically like, like capacity wise, it's not possible to, to reach every single person who wants to reach you. I don't like being totally inaccessible. So I am the type of person who I will respond to every email. It might not be um, within the first like five minutes, but I will respond to every email. And depending on the email and depending on the person and depending on the nature of the connection, um, I, I, uh, I either offer people, you know, an opportunity to ask me the questions via email and I'll respond that way. Um, or I'll refer to people to certain blog posts that I've written, um, or depending if it's a personal connection with someone who actually has been introduced to me by someone that I really value and whose relationship I really value, then I'll actually will take, you know, a coffee meeting or a lunch date. But I think, you know, as entrepreneurs, um, our time is very scarce. And I feel like, you know, if you don't, if you don't, incorporate self-care and work-life balance strategies, then the then your business is going to start feeling like real, real hard work as opposed to you actually trying to build something that you care about because you're passionate about the problem you're trying to solve. And so I've learned, um, you know, a few techniques of which means like you're either going to send me all your questions via email and I'm going to respond electronically or you know, you um, can set up a coffee date or I'll refer you to things um, that I've already written that may be able to help. Um, and I, and, you know, I, I really don't like saying no, but I think for my sanity, you know, for me to be realistic about myself and, and the kinds of things that I need to be a fu fully functional human being, saying no um, has been a great lesson learned in 2016 that I'm going to be carrying with me in 2017. Uh, I think, as always, Jessica said some great um, insight there. Um, so I definitely have incorporated saying no um, to certain things. Um, but also when I say no, I try to connect the person that I'm saying no to other people that may be helpful um, as like speakers or advice 
you know, people that they can connect with, whatever the oppor- whatever the opportunity that I'm saying no to. Um, so whenever I say no, it's very intentional and thought out of why I'm saying no, but I also try to think about how I can connect that person to an additional resource. Um, I think one of the big things for me too is like trying to write more um, so that I can get a lot of the lessons that I've learned out there to people. Um, and when people are asking me questions, because to be honest with you, like a lot of times when people reach out to you, a lot of people have similar questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, thinking about those questions, writing about that and referring them uh, to to people to read first and saying like, hey, if you have additional questions, let me know. And I think it's about scheduling your time. I was meeting with a buddy today, actually, for lunch. Um, and he we were talking about how like when you're younger. You know, when you're like in college, your first, your freshman year of college, your sophomore year, and you reach out to professionals, sometimes like you will write them really long emails and they get back to you with like one or two words or one sentence. And you take that person like, yo, I just wrote you a whole email. <laughs> like, why are you only replying back to me in a few words? Or like you ask to meet with somebody um, and they want to meet with you like two months out. Um, I think when I was in college, as an undergrad, I took that kind of like personal. Mm-hmm. Um, now as a professional, I understand what was going on sometimes, not in all cases, but in most cases, like people are busy, right? Um, and they're trying to figure out how to be most effective with their time. So with that said, like I always make the time for someone, but I let them know up front also like why I can't do it right now. So I think it's very important about like, how do you communicate? So if someone reaches out to me, and I know right now all my attention needs to be focused on fundraising or all my attention needs to be focused on like closing business contracts. Um, I'll say, you know, I can't meet right now. Let me know your questions, but you know, maybe we can meet next month. However, if it's urgent, let me know and I'll try to f- my best to figure out a time to meet now. So I think it's also about being transparent with people also. Um, so yeah, man. Nah, that's that be big things on my end. Now, y'all dropping some very, very technical and very great advice for, for our listeners. And I really appreciate y'all not just uh, pontificating about stories, but also giving a lot of actionable stuff that whatever business or whatever industry, career path you're on, they could take away. So that's a great segue into our last round, a culture change round, where I ask a series of rapid fire questions and hopefully receive a series of rapid fire answers. Y'all ready to start? Yeah, sure. All right, cool. What is the best piece of advice that you never received? Because <laughs> <Hold on. laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I had to change it up because I was like, man, I've been doing the same ones for like 38, 48 episodes. I was like, okay, let me change it up a little bit. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Give me one second. <laughs> I never received. Um. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a good one. I'm gonna have to use that, man. I like that one. <laughs> um, oh, you know what? Ahead, I haven't. College, college will not determine your life success. And I mm. think for me, uh, do I have to? Oh, yeah, you should can. I? Yeah, you can go ahead. Go ahead. Go explain. Okay. Um. So yeah. So college is not going to determine your life success. You know, the things you do after college and what you decide to commit to. Um, afterward in terms of what you want out of your professional career or what you want um, in terms of your civic engagement or what you want to do in terms of the business you want to to start. You know, I think that is what's going to determine your success. You really carving out the things that matter to you because, you know, a few years ago, my mom was like, nope, you're going to go to college and that's going to determine, you know, your 
your success and then after that you're just going to be successful and I think I realized like no you know college um, was a road on my way to success and I realized everything after college was things that I needed to adult on um, and really figure out what my values were and you know go from there Mm, that's great Uh, yeah I was gonna say I I think that was good too I think you know and I don't want people to get confused about what I'm saying but what I've learned about life is like life is a game and I don't mean in the sense that like don't take it serious but meaning like life is literally a series of learning lessons when you think about it like you know when you're playing a video game and you fail on that first board or you fail that mission the next time around you understand how to navigate that mission a little better like you know how I can go to this this room and find the hidden key like I need to watch out for the monster that's going to come here <laughs> uh-huh. right? It's essentially like that's what I've learned about life is like it's a game. And essentially, as you're going through each phase of your life, which is a new board on the video game, like you're learning a life lesson that's going to make you ready for the next one. And I don't think anyone ever kind of told me, like, Evan, life's a game, um, because I think, you know, just like I'm trying to say now, like people might think what I'm trying to say is you can't don't take it serious. What I'm actually trying to say is that you're learning as you move along. And that's the importance of when you're playing a video game. Like you're learning how to beat a board so you can beat the next board. Um, and I think that applies from everything from like the environments that you're navigating in corporate to school to your own business. Mm-hmm. No, those are both great, great answers. And the next question, uh, what is your biggest fear? Um, my biggest fear is like living life with regret of not just, you know, accomplishing and or at least trying to accomplish everything that I wanted to do with my life. Mm. Um, I think that would be my biggest fear. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. Or like type of bugs crawling on me that I can't see. That is it. You just can't find it. You like, where is it at in my bed? Like, is it? <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, I think my biggest fear is directly tied to what I want my legacy to be. And I think it's going back to what Evan just said, like living my life um, with a lot of what ifs and not not, a, not enough of of I did mm. um, or I, I, you know, I will or I have done. Um, yeah, that's my biggest fear. Oh, that's great. That's great. Both of those. Um, the, the fears are not great, but <laughs> you okay. <laughs> if there's one habit that you could add to your life, what would it be? Audit yourself. I think one of the biggest things that I learned that I took with me from business uh, is like I audit myself <laughs> a lot. You know, I think a lot of times we set goals for ourselves and then we don't look at those goals. So, like, you know, things that I'll do is like one of my big goals, these are one goals of many. Like, I'll say, okay, I don't want to check social media a lot this year. Um, like I felt like I found myself going on social media a lot. Um, so what I did was that every day I read my goals, but I also audit myself in the sense of saying, okay, today is Monday. How many times did I look at my social media? And if it's so many times that I can't remember how many times I looked on my, my social media accounts, then I know like I didn't stay true to that goal, but you don't realize that unless you audit yourself. So really holding yourself accountable to the benchmarks and the goals that you want to hit. Um, so I think that's important to audit yourself, your life, your business, uh, your relationships, and, and see how you can continue to improve. Yeah, I think for me is sleep more. Um, I think like 
you know, a lot of people do like hashtag team no sleep. And at one point I'm like, yeah, hashtag team no sleep. And I was just like, no, that kind of worked for me when I was in college. But now it's just <laughs> like I need to I need to sleep more. Um, and so I think going back to what Evan said about social media, you know, I I want to incorporate sleeping more as a, as a habit. I've been on top of it since 2017, um, but it is early in the year, to be honest. So I'm not sure uh, what my self-assessment is going to be at the end of the year. But that's definitely a, a daily habit I want to incorporate. Oh, that's great. That, that that is those are two huge, huge ones. And um, and and also, what is your top, I guess, two digital resources or websites that y'all use on an everyday basis? I'm gonna be honest with you. Um, I use LinkedIn every day and I use Facebook every day, but I don't use them. Like I use Facebook every day to kind of like make sure I'm not missing nobody's important birthday, right? <laughs> like, you know, close friends or uh, family members or people that have been significant in my life. Um, and then I use LinkedIn to manage my business relationships, um, which has been very important for the growth of New York on tech as well as myself professionally. Um, so from a, from that perspective, um, I use those every day, but I also use Flipboard a lot, um, which is our, which I use still, which is on my phone to uh, look at news. So I use Flipboard to constantly dig through news articles on certain industries that I'm interested in. Yeah, um, I think you know I use way more than two. I think, and it also depends on what I'm, you know, what what kind yeah. of mood, what kind of mood I am in today. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a really big fan of Marie Forleo. I think she's fantastic. Oh man, she's um, freaking so, dope. Yeah, so when I need some inspiration, it's MarieForleo.com for her Q and A Tuesdays. Um, <laughs> and, and then um, in terms of like you know curation of content and like how I can get information really fast, I would say it's Twitter. Uh, managing business relationships and just you know just branding in general i would say it's linkedin um but i also have flipboard and i i you know i have a few mobile apps like the new york times that give me um up-to-date real-time articles on things that i care about and so those are those are definitely some of the resources i use no, those are those are great answers i make sure i include all those um resources in the show notes and then um the last question, and I, I guess that that will wrap up. Actually, no, because I think I asked a question similar to that earlier in the round. So I'll wrap up the culture change round. And the last question of the whole podcast, I call myself a culture change agent. And every person that I bring on this show is a culture change agent in their own right, in their own lane, in their own industry. So this question is, you can change one thing about society, most specifically um, the minority culture. What would it be and why? Mm. Honestly, I don't think I would change anything about the culture. I think people of color in our country are creators, are innovators, are like contributing so much significance to um, our national economy. I think the problem is, is that oftentimes those stories are not the ones that are shared via very big media platforms. So I'm not sure that I would change anything about um the culture i think i would try and change mainstream culture to see more of the beauty and and more of the contributions we make to our society that oftentimes go unnoticed Mm. that's true evan 
be honest with you, Jessica took the words out of my mouth. She just said it in a different way. I was essentially going to say that, you know, I think, you know, uh, African-Americans, Blacks as a whole, Latinos, minorities as a whole, like when you think about society and a lot of the greatest advancements that we've had, um, like we're there and like we we are a major part in, um, in that development. So I think as a culture, I wouldn't change anything because essentially we have continued to be change agents um, for many of years and continue to be innovators for many years. The only thing I was going to say was like the marketing behind it, right? And that kind of goes back to what Jessica was saying about mainstream culture in the sense that like it, we need for those contributions to continue to be uh, pushed, whether it's by mainstream or it's by our own stream, right? So like when you see another person of, of, of minority descent, um, like doing amazing things, like continue to share that because when you share it, it reaches more people. And when it reaches more people, they share it and it reaches more people. So I think it's important to continue to push the accomplishments um, that we have as a community because sometimes they're not always broadcasted on all the major media outlets. Um, uh, but, you know, you do see people being highlighted for their work. So I won't say that people don't get highlighted. I would just say not all cases are highlighted. So I think it's important as a culture that we continue to support the success of each other mm-hmm. and understand that we are doing amazing things. Um, so that would be my kind of input there. Nah, that's those are both great answers. And this, like I like I said in the beginning, this was a phenomenal one of my best interviews in the whole session, specifically definitely in season three. And I'm just glad I got on your schedule because I know y'all have a very 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 busy couple of months. Definitely, Jessica, let me know. So I glad I'm glad I slid right in before things ramped up. So I thank y'all for giving me well over an hour and thirty minutes of y'all time. I appreciate it. No, no, thanks so much for having us. We love what you're doing. It's really important. Thanks, Greg. Nah. Yeah, second. No doubt. So how can everybody reach reach out to y'all and find more information about New York on Tech and what I do? Where where can we find y'all on social media? Yeah, we're on almost every single platform. And so you can find us at NewYorkOnTech.org. You can find us on Facebook.com slash New York on Tech, Twitter at New York on Tech, Instagram at New York on Tech, Medium at New York on Tech. <laughs> There's no way that you can't access us um, should you need to be in touch. Yep. So I might know the trouble as a nation. Y'all heard it. I'm going to have everything in the show notes where y'all can find out about more of the great work they're doing and possibly get in contact with them. So from the bottom of my heart and minority trailblazer nation heart, we want to say thank you again. And thank you. Thank you for having us. <laughs> nah, no problem. No problem. No problem. Minority trailblazer nation. You already know I need y'all to do two things and two things only. One, make sure you leave us a review on iTunes. If you're on SoundCloud, follow us, share with a friend, do all that good stuff. And sec, don't you ever forget to change the freaking culture. Good night.